Welcome to High Tide, Low Tide, the podcast where we talk about all things mental health and where we share our stories with the knowledge that it could just be the lifeline of hope for someone who is hurting and afraid that they're the only one. I'm your host, Lisa Scanlon, and I am so glad that you're here with me today. Just a little reminder here, guys, that we are discussing mental health in this episode, so we may touch on things like suicide or self-harm, which may be a trigger for you. As always, I'll pop resources in the show notes or know that you can call Lifeline 24-7 on 13 11 14. Hey, friends, and happy Wednesday. Thank you so much for joining me for the 10th episode of High Tide, Low Tide. For me right now, it is actually happy Friday because I am recording this on Friday night and I am enjoying myself a little Rocky Gin right now just to wind out the weekend. I don't mind myself a little gin, but always drinking responsibly, drinking responsibly, of course. My week this week has been pretty normal, nothing too out of the ordinary, just normal work and training and things like that. Yesterday was a bit of a hectic day for me. I had a really close call on the roads. So just a little shout out to people to please stop rushing on the roads. The things like road road tolls and things like that are absolutely ridiculous and Honestly, I don't know. I don't think it's just Adelaide, but drivers in general are just literally idiots. Please slow down. Please stop tailgating and just let's all drive safely and get home safely. Anyway, um, avoided any miss by the sheer fact that I'm vigilant and managed to swerve um, away from being T-boned. And then yesterday, so that happened during the day. So I was already like super shaken from that. And then I went to donate plasma yesterday after work, which is something that I do. I aim to go every two weeks. I'd say I probably get there every three or four weeks, if I'm being honest with myself. And I went and I was sitting in the chair and I was probably like 10 minutes in or so. It takes a little bit longer to donate plasma. And uh, I was just sitting there minding my own business on my phone and I was like, oh, something feels a bit weird. And I looked over and there was just like blood pouring out of my arm from where the needle was, which is really weird. Anyway, it was like all over the chair and all over the floor and I was just like, um, um, can somebody help me because there is blood. <laughs> anyway, no idea exactly how that happened, but anyway, they obviously stopped taking the plasma and then um, they took care of me and I had to stay and wait around for a little bit longer and make sure I had something to eat and lots of fluids and it's been all good since then and these things sometimes just happen but um, it was really cool when I was there and they had all these um, like British flags up and they had scones with jam and cream because um, I think before there was restrictions around people who'd lived in the UK between certain dates couldn't donate um, blood or plasma but now they've made a change to that and I think there are still some restrictions but they've opened that up so if you are one of those people in those category just have a look into it and get in and donate some blood or some plasma it's something that I literally do almost for a selfish reason because it it makes me 
feel good when I do it. Like donating plasma or donating blood literally makes me feel good about myself. So, um, yeah, and maybe you'll feel good about doing it as well. So if you've been thinking about it or maybe you've never done it before, just pop into a donation centre and have a chat with the people there or you can call them or anything like that. It's interesting, like the very first time I attempted to donate blood, I was actually over living in Gilly T, so over in Lombok. And prior to this, I never knew that there was different rules or different regulations where you lived. So unfortunately, as a local staff member, his wife um, was actually quite unwell and she required some blood but over there it works it worked a little bit different so in order for her to get the blood that she needed she actually had to find donors so the staff member that we worked with he had asked and um, another staff member uh, Darius he helped us to organize to go over so anyone with that blood type and I am an O positive. So all of the people in the dive shop at that time who had an O positive blood type, we all went over. So we caught a boat and a two-hour car ride after work one day over to Mataram, which is the capital of Lombok. And we all went over to attempt to donate. Sadly, on that day, I wasn't, was not actually able to donate because of the iron levels, platelet levels, something like that in the test blood that they had a look at. And I think there was four or five of us that managed to do it. So that was really amazing. But it just really, I, I just always sort of, when I walk into the blood donor centers here, I'm always reminded of the fact that we are so lucky that we have things like that here. And, you know, to think that, imagine being here and you need you need a blood donation or transfusion or whatever it is and you would have to ask people to have to go and donate in order to get that blood maybe that's not how it is everywhere in Indonesia that was just the experience that I had but I just thought it was a little bit of an interesting story and just something I you know every time I walk in I remind myself of how it how it was over there and yeah how lucky we are here so anyway that was my week not super interesting so I am like, I'm honestly so, so excited to be delivering you guys episode number 10. Episode number 10 was a bit of a landmark for me in my own mind. When I started looking at, you know, when I started having this little idea in my head that I wanted to start a podcast I had started to do a little bit of research and I would look at different things on Google and then I started listening to podcasts about starting a podcast, which is hilarious. But there's so much information, there's so many podcasts about starting podcasts out there. So I cannot for the life of me remember whose podcast it was that I was listening to. But I remember listening to it and the the host was talking about how how many podcasts don't even make it to 10 episodes. So there's loads of these podcasts out there apparently sitting in this little podcast graveyard um, with less than 10 episodes. So I remember thinking to myself at that time, I just need to make it to 10. I just need to make it to 10 and I know that it's going to make it. You know, it's going to survive. I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make it as a podcast producer. So it's really, really exciting for me to be able to do this today. 
And since then, I've actually given myself another goal. So I made it to 10. Tick. I really, really want to make it to 52. So as you know, these episodes are coming out weekly and I want to make it to a year. So that's sort of my next goal, but just a little interesting fact. So in today's episode, I'm going to be talking about my self-harm story, my journey with self-harm. And this is the most vulnerable I've ever been, not just on the podcast, but in sharing this story in general. There are a few people who know small amounts about this part of my life and there are a lot of people who know nothing about this part of my life. So it's actually quite scary for me to be recording this, but at the same time I'm actually really excited at the same time because I've seen the power that there is in sharing this type of story and how it can help other people. So I really just hope that, you know, I hope that nobody connects with my story and no one knows how I feel, but sadly that is not realistic and there will be people out there who listen and they resonate with parts of my story and I just hope that they feel seen and they feel understood and they realise that they're not the only one out there and they're not in this on their own. And there's a huge myth out there that uh, self-harm is something that's, you know, done just as an attention-seeking type activity. And um, that is something that I'm really hoping to break down with this episode. And I hope that moving forward in the future, that's something we continue to break down. And with saying that, if there are people that are listening today or if there are people out there who just simply can't understand what it would feel like to feel the need to self-harm or to feel the, you know, like that suicide was an option or can't understand what it's like to cut yourself. I'm so happy for you. I would like to hope that you would lead with kindness as always, but if you're someone out there and you're going to listen to this episode and you think, oh, I I just can't understand, I just can't resonate, Be grateful. Be so, so thankful that you don't know what it's like. But also understand that the statistics show that it's more than likely that you know someone who who does feel that way or who has felt that way or who has self-harmed in the past and just try to be a little more understanding. So if you are one of those people, I hope you continue to listen to this episode and I really do hope that you learn something out of it. So I got a little bit of information from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare around statistics and I will put this link in the show notes so you can have a look at it yourself as well. And these stats um, show that in Australia from 2019 to 2020, more than 28,000 cases of intentional self-harm hospitalizations were recorded. 28,000. Now, it's actually hard to understand that like the true numbers around self-harm because so many of them go unreported. Like I never reported to anybody that I self-harmed. So whilst we do have some statistics, I would say they're not super 
correct, but at least we have something to sort of, you know, look at and I guess process in some way. Now, the rates of hospitalisation for intentional self-harm are significantly higher for women. I think it's nearly two-thirds of those numbers belong to women, which is actually the opposite of the numbers that we see for deaths by suicide, where the rate is actually much higher for men. And in part, this would be due to the differences in methods that are used by men as opposed to females. So the statistics show that males tend to use a more lethal method when they self-harm or when they attempt suicide. Um, And sadly, yeah, that reflects in the numbers as well. And females aged 15 to 24 actually have the highest rates of self-harm. And when I think about that last, that last statistics, females aged 15 to 24, that is the exact age bracket that I fell into for the most part of my own self-harm. Now, when I sat down to start planning this episode, so usually I'll sit down with my little notebook and I'll start to write out how I want the episode to flow, I was trying to remember the first time that... I sort of took that next step for self-harm and I thought I had a very clear picture of when that time was and there's a photograph that goes along with that memory which luckily for me Facebook memories remember everything so I actually have that photo with a date stamp and that was in 2011. So that was the like the earliest that my mind could take me back to that that was something that I had turned to and so I thought do you know what I'm going to sit down and I'm going to go through my diaries and if anyone has followed along on my social media at high tide low tide au you would have seen um, that I keep have kept diaries for pretty much my entire life like I think I have one from when I was like seven or something like that And they're a really good resource to actually reflect back on um, and also mortifying at the same time. So I started going through these diaries and I was looking for 2011 and actually I have a bunch that are missing so there could be a bunch of stuff in there. But I actually stumbled across a diary entry from 2007. And this diary entry is, it's a lot, but I think that it is really relevant to where this episode is going to go today. So I really wanted to read it out. And reading this out is really not going to be easy for me at all. And it is going to be a little bit confronting. So please just bear that in mind and feel free to skip through if this isn't um, you know, good for your own mental health to listen to. So the date at the top of this entry reads the 24th or 25th of March, 2007. Not sure if I stayed up to see midnight through. That's why there's two dates or if I started at one day and finished at the next. And when I look at this entry, I can already tell by my handwriting what kind of state I was in. It's very, like, I can almost describe the the handwriting as manic, I suppose. Like, it's, there's a lot of energy that's gone into it. It's really dark. It's very, yeah, I don't know. So... The diary entry reads, No one will ever understand how I feel. Tonight, 
I scratched and cut at my arm until it bled. I held a knife to my throat while I stared into my own drenched bloodshot eyes in my bathroom mirror. I wanted to feel the pain. The physical pain made the pain on the inside stop. I am so confused. But I want to do it again. More. Because it helps. I'm tired and lonely, although surrounded by people. Tired of being let down and disappointed. I am scared because I know this feeling isn't normal. I'm sick of being made to feel second best or unworthy. I ponder what to do, but the fog never clears. I try to be happy, but the pain always comes back. I'm insecure about everything. Wanting to disappear. Wanting to be shown the things I show and told the things I tell. Not feeling normal. Wanting not to feel anything. If you don't love or care, you can't have your heart broken or be disappointed. Being really scared. Wanting them all to have to care. Not wanting to be lonely anymore. Not wanting to be afraid anymore. So that's a lot. And these are the things that my mind was telling me. These were my thoughts. This is what's going on in my head when I was feeling like that. That took a lot to read and I feel super exposed having read it but still super compelled to have read it. Like I I want it out there. That was a lot to read. Like I said, this is super vulnerable. So as you can kind of see from the, the start of that, diary entry, for the most part, I think my self-harm story started with scratching. So the scratching obviously moved on to cutting at some point. And it wasn't, I feel like when you say the term cutting, there is a very specific image that comes to your mind. And like, if you were to Google it, I feel like that's exactly what would come up. So, you know, and it would be a female arm with loads and loads of cuts on it or the top of their legs or something like that. And that is a common thing to occur. For me, it wasn't my story. So for me, it was more of a, a press, I suppose, um, a press to inflict pain For me, self-harm was such a coping mechanism. It was a response to like my brain being out of control and being super, super overwhelmed with really intense negative thoughts Um, like I just read out. And that is not even one of the worst diary entries that I actually found. So my brain, and I've, I talk about it in my first episode about the snowballing. So something small happens and you just go over and over and over and over and over in your head and it becomes something massive. And once you sort of go down that wormhole, it's very difficult to come out and I would be sort of stuck in this very, very worked up state. And 
when I would get into this state, it was the only tool I had at that time to make it stop. Because I found that by inflicting the physical pain on myself, my, it made it stop. My brain couldn't focus on the two things at the one time. So it couldn't be going manic in my brain and, fo- and having that pain at the same time. My brain had to make a choice about what it was going to focus on and the pain would win and my mind would stop. And I can remember one time very, very vividly. So at the time I was still living at home in the, in the family home and my bedroom had an ensuite attached to it. So I can remember one time that I had gotten myself into this state where I was unable to stop myself. I was unable to calm down. I was just circling over and over in these negative thoughts. And I, I don't know where, where the initial thought is to, to, to self-harm, but I can remember going out and walking out into the kitchen and going to the top drawer, opening the top drawer, taking out a knife. And I can remember the knife exactly as if it's in my hand right now. It was a steak knife, like one you would use if you were eating steak. And I walked that knife back into my bedroom and back into the bathroom. So I was obviously able to calm myself down enough to walk out into the kitchen, which kind of contradicts what I just said. I guess, I, I mean, I certainly don't know everything and, I mean, I'm still learning about myself now. But I can remember taking that knife and going back into the bathroom and obviously, like, letting everything go again. And I can remember myself sitting down on the floor in that bathroom. I can see the bath mat and everything and... All I would do then is I would just start to press the the knife down onto my wrist. And in that moment, just before that, I'm in this state where I feel like I can't even breathe. And in that moment when I'm sat there on the floor and I've, I've, I've taken that step and I've pressed the knife into my skin, it's like everything stops and I can't breathe for a second because it takes the, almost takes the air out of you and it's like I get this reprieve. My brain stops. The voice in my head stops. The snowball stops and you're just focused on that pain for a second. And sometimes I would sit there and I would do it a couple of times. You know, I was not... Usually for me, I wouldn't be making multiple cuts at a time. I would have, you know, pressed in and maybe broken the skin a little bit. And then I would, I'd stick to the same spot. And, you know, sometimes that I would make myself bleed a little bit. Sometimes I wouldn't. You know, it was, like I said, this was just such a coping mechanism for me at the time because I didn't have the knowledge to know what else to do. And... As soon as I'd done that and I'd had that moment where I felt like I couldn't breathe, then everything would start to slow down again. It's almost like in a a little way, it was almost like I'd come crashing back down to earth and back to reality 
and I'm now realising what I've now done. So once that had been done, then I would start to sort of, yeah, slow my breathing down again. Perhaps I would now stop crying and I would probably then go and put myself to bed. And then I would wake up the next day and I would be absolutely riddled with shame and I'd have to figure out how I was going to hide it. And we get really good at doing that as well. So it would be the middle of summer and I'd be wearing a jumper. And I started to like wrap, you know, like hair scarves, like those like thin, long, rectangular hair scarves. I started to like wrap those around my wrist and pretend like it was like an alternative for a bracelet. Like, oh, this is just a fashion statement. It's a floral hair hair scarf wrapped around my wrist when really it was disguising um, the fact that I'd been self-harming. And that's that like this is where the, that picture in my brain that the, the first time that I can remember I, I think maybe it's just because I have that photo evidence of that having occurred so there's a series of um, a couple of photos where I'd actually gone out to town into the city with some of my girlfriends on a Saturday night and I was wearing like a, a t-shirt and a skirt and heels and I had this um, hair scarf wrapped around my wrist and uh, no one even questioned it. I don't think anybody noticed. It was just something I was wearing. And these photos, and I'll probably will share these photos, they act for me as somewhat of a reminder about where I've been and how far I've come. So whilst I still find them a little bit triggering when I do look at them myself, at the same time, it's actually yeah, kind of a, a little bit of a reminder, I suppose. As time went on, I realised that I didn't want anyone to see the the scars or the cuts on my arm. And, you know, people do often hu- end up hiding their self-harm in places where people can't see them, like the tops of their legs is, is a common one. So from there, I actually moved on to physically hitting myself. Um, predominantly in the face. So, you know, I can remember like standing and staring at myself in the mirror and punching myself in the face. And that is actually really hard to say. And I know that there will be people listening that that's really hard to hear. And, you know, when you know, I, I couldn't do it with my fist, I would do it with something else. So I can remember hitting myself with a hairbrush or I can remember hitting myself with like a deodorant can. And it's weird because like I didn't, you know, I never hit myself hard enough to like cause any real damage, like I never bruised or anything like that. But I wanted to be swollen. Like I wanted at that time to kind of see the physical pain to some degree that I had caused myself So, you know, I would get like a bit of a red cheek or something like that. But as I said, it was, you know, it was never to the point where like it bruised. But I can remember standing and looking like dead, dead into my own eyes whilst I was doing it and feeling like I truly deserved it. 
And for me, that really ties back into the fact that I had a lot of issues, especially at that time and around, you know, self-worth, self-worth and self-love. And it's something that I've forever been working on pretty much since my mental health journey started. I mean, who needs enemies when I've got my own brain telling me that I deserve to punch myself in the face, right? For some people, so like intentional self-harm is a once-off thing. For other people, it can become repetitive. For me, like there was no real like pattern or it wasn't all the time. It was kind of like an every so often thing. There were definitely periods where it was more frequent, like especially in like certain periods of my life, it was something that I thought about more often. For me, self-harm was, it, it was never suicidal. Like I never, I never wanted to die. I never truly wanted to die. I just wanted my brain to stop. Although at the same time in saying that, I did have suicidal thoughts in that I just felt like life was too much and that it was too hard and things were never going to get better and, yeah, like that too hard just keeps coming up. It's too hard, it's too hard and that dying would be a relief in that moment. To not have to be going through what I was going through mentally would be a, a relief to be able to escape my own head. But as I said before, like I never, I, do, I don't really feel as though I, like I ever, I never truly wanted to die. I just wanted my thoughts to stop. I just wanted my brain to stop. For me now, it's been quite a long time since I have had a thought around self-harm or I have self-harmed in general quite a few years, I believe. So how I think I've managed to be able to get to this point now is just I have really learned and I have a much, much better understanding of myself and my mental health and how I need to manage it. So I can stop myself from getting to the point at which it peaks and where I in the past would have turned to self-harm. So it's like a self-management type thing. That has taken a lot of work um, and I'm not perfect by any means and there are times where, you know, you're stronger than others. So, But I think definitely having that self-awareness helps massively. Early on when I very, very first started seeing a psychologist, she taught me the stop sign method. So basically when you start having a negative thought or when you start um, escalating, you just think about this really big red stop sign, like stop. And when I, back then I, I started using that method and that really, really helped for me being able to just sort of have that big stop, big red, big thought right in front of your face. That helped me to sort of move away from those feelings a little bit. Journaling for me is a massive tool um, in so many aspects of my mental health. But definitely if I'm starting to spiral, and again, when I start to spiral, that's when I'm more at risk of having those thoughts around self-harm. 
that if I start to journal, I can write down all of those messed up things that my brain is telling me and those thoughts that I'm having, and I can put them down onto paper and I can see them and I can see how ridiculous they are. Like if I'm thinking you're useless, you're worthless, no one loves you, it's one thing. But then to write it out on a piece of paper and look at it back with your own eyes, it gives you an extra chance to actually pick up on the fact that that's ridiculous and that that isn't true as well. In the past, I've also then ripped that paper out of a journal and set it on fire in a safe manner outside of the house. Maybe you might find that therapeutic as well, but definitely get that shit that's going in your brain out onto paper, write it out, let it go, move on. Another tool that I know that I've used that has been super helpful in the past is to message a friend and say to them, hey, I'm not okay, I'm having these thoughts. And of course, this you need to have the right person in your life that you can send those types of messages to and that they're you know willing and have that space to be able to receive it as well. But basically by doing that, I'm now having to participate in a conversation through text with that person that's back at a, I guess, at a regular level and it's not as manic. And that person is going to be hopefully replying, you know, saying, you know, don't, you know, these things are going to pass. And it's just to, when my brain is at that really manic level, having somebody, having to have a conversation that is back down at a quote unquote regular level is very helpful because you, it's hard to be in both places at once. It's hard to be hectically manic and hectically like spiraling, but also having a regular conversation at the same time. So for me, that is a tool that works very well. Getting into the ocean, get in the salt water. It is therapy. Um, if you can, I am very lucky that I have I live very close to the water. So um, if I'm having a really bad time, even if it's the middle of winter, I'm going to go in and get myself in that salt water and that's going to help me feel better. And also another one that I will implement is I will just simply put myself to bed. If I'm having those kind of thoughts that are leading towards maybe feeling that need or that want to self-harm, I will put myself to bed because when I wake up in the morning, chances are I'm not going to feel the same way as when I went to bed. So that actually works really well for me as well. And usually when I've worked myself up this much, I will have been crying anyway and I've probably tired myself out. So I'm more than happy to be going to bed at that point anyway. But definitely I would say, yeah, just back, I just have to circle back to that self-awareness piece and just the more you can learn about yourself and what triggers you, the more you can learn what helps you to calm down, that's all going to be a tool in helping you not take that sort of next, you know, step when you're considering that self-harm. So there are other things that people could like may use as well, like, Um, hitting a punching bag or making loud noises like hitting the drums or screaming into a pillow. Um, There was a list I looked up as well that said things like exercising, doing art, rubbing ice on the skin instead of cutting or elastic bands on the wrists is another one as well. So obviously a little bit less intrusive. So it's just about learning what works for you. 
And as I said, it's because I've learned to manage my mental health and my thoughts better that I've not had to use those tactics quite as much for a while now. And don't get me wrong, like it is, you know, something that, again, I'm going to manage forever. But so if you think about someone who copes with pain or stress or whatever it is by drinking, okay, and suppose that has gotten to, it has escalated to a point where it's now an issue, okay, and then they've got the help and maybe they've stopped drinking um, altogether and now they've learned other ways to manage that pain and that stress. Still, it's quite common that the first thing that they're going to think of when they are stressed or when they start to become um, triggered is, oh, God, I would like a drink. But they've learned enough to choose something else instead. Sometimes that's how it is for me with self-harm. So it's like a fleeting thought in that moment to, um, if something, you know, if I'm quiet out of joint. Maybe I'm going to think about it for a, it might just be a split second. It's there and then it's gone. Other times it might be there for a little bit longer. It's like, it is different all the time. This is just life. And this is just life living with a mental health condition of some kind. There's no right or wrong. There's no one way fits all. It's what works for you and learning as you go. And honestly, I think like, the more that we talk about it, the less stigma there is going to be around it and the more people are going to ask for help. And if you are out there and you're listening and you you know, want to know how to support somebody who might be self-harming or if you think somebody might be self-harming, I have a couple of tips for you about what you can do. I am no trained professional, so please just keep that in mind. But these are just some little things that you can do or just a little reminders. So first of all, don't ignore it. Yeah. Do some reach on uh, research online. You don't have to be a expert about it. If you've not been through it yourself, maybe you don't really understand or maybe you don't mu- know much about it. But You can find so much information on Google. So if you are worried about someone that you love, somebody that you know, but you want to get a bit more information, just look it up. Do take it seriously, okay? Do take self-harm seriously. Don't brush it off as an attention-seeking thing. Um, Ask them about it. Uh, This is someone you care about, whether it's a friend or a family member. Ask them about it. Say, hey, I've noticed this. Can we talk about it? Make sure you pick the right time and the place. Like don't do it in a group of people where that's probably going to make somebody shut down and not want to talk about it. Choose a time when it's just the two of you. Choose a time when there's no distractions. Go for a walk. Come around for a coffee. Do all of this with love. And that goes without saying. Do ask them if they're suicidal, okay? This can be a little bit of a daunting thing to do, but it's better to have asked than not, yeah? And if they say yes, take that seriously, yeah? Then look at what the next steps are, yeah? Say to them, I love you, I'm worried about you, how can I help? Or how can we get help together? Let's make an appointment to see the doctor, Let's make an appointment to see a psychologist. And if it's really bad, get immediate help. 
Um, there's Lifeline you can call. You can go straight to the hospital. There's all in my show notes. There is like multiple different numbers that you can call immediately to get help if that's what's needed. Encourage them to seek that help. So say, oh, we can we can look this up together. Or how about I make an appointment for you at the GP? How about I come to the appointment with you? Would, it, would you like that? So just be there for that person and encourage them to seek that help. Don't make assumptions as to why they're self-harming. Don't expect it to change overnight. It's a learning process and an unlearning process at the same time. And do very importantly make sure that you take care of yourself and seek advice or support from others if you're not sure what to do. You're not expected to know everything and you're not expected to have all the answers. The best thing you can do is to start a conversation and be there for your loved one to help guide them and to help support them and to help them get that help that they need. I really encourage you as well to look into doing something like a mental health first aid course. These are super, super informative and considering just how many of our loved ones are going through some kind of mental health um, condition or issues or whatever it is, it just really helps to give you a little bit more of the tools on how you can help those people and also better help yourself as well. So that's something that I encourage people always to do, regardless of the situation that they're in. If you're out there and you are listening and you are resonating with parts of my story, you know, I see you, I feel you, and I just want you to know that it can get better. And I really just want you to know that there is help out there and that there are things that you can do to, in the long run, make different choices and to move away from that habit. Coming online and putting out to the world my my journey with self-harm is something that I always knew I would do. I hope that this podcast has done it justice and I really hope that people take something away from it. If this episode has triggered you in any way, it certainly isn't my intention. I simply just really want to start a conversation and have this narrative around self-harm because there are so many people out there who it's part of their life or it has been a part of their life. And I think that by hiding it under my sweater in summer and under my hair ties and under all those things and not talking about it, we're all just going through it on our own. And there's that is just so destructive. And the more that we can relate and find out, you know, what helps this person and what helps that person, the more progress we're going to make and the less stigma there is going to be around this type of thing. Just remember as well that Lifeline, you can call anytime, 24 hours on 13, 11, 14. I really hope that this episode delivers everything that I had hoped. I'm really nervous and I don't even know what I'm trying to say in the closing of this episode. I just, I'm so glad that I feel as though I have this wonderful space and this wonderful circle of people who listen 
and they message me and they support me and they tell me what they liked about this episode and that they listened to this other episode and those things mean a lot and I think that has given me the strength to be able to come on and talk through this part of my life. So I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who's logged on. Please share the episode. That's the point. The more people it reaches, the more people it helps. So thank you again and I will see you next time. Dewey. If you enjoyed today's episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave me a five-star review. Even better, if you know someone who might benefit from listening to it, please tell them all about it. You'll find more information from today's episode in the show notes. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on High Tide, Low Tide, please email me at lisa, spelled L-E-E-S-A, at hightidelowtideau.com or DM me on Instagram at hightidelowtideau. See you next time.